Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast. This week, Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity with Kennedy Hall. Actually, he's not here, but you can go buy his book, Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. But this is a show we're going to talk about men and the pro-life struggle with two pro-life Canadians fighting on the front lines of the pro-life struggle. Welcome to Jonathan and Jeff. Gentlemen, Christ is risen. Great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Good. Things are good. Thanks for having us. And we have, uh, Jeff, you are in Ontario. Are you both in Ontario? Where? Or you're in Calgary, you said. it was. So I'm, in, West- I'm in Calgary, so in Western Canada. And we yeah. call it the equivalent of uh, the Texas in Canada. So uh, things are challenging, but not as challenging as where Jonathan is out in, in Ontario. Oh yes. Okay. Excellent. Well, I uh, we just had our our April seventeen snowfall here in Michigan. Are, are do you have uh, snow on the ground in Calgary today? We actually it's just cleared up. So we get things called Chinooks, where we get warm air coming over the mountains, and uh, the latest Chinook that we've had has cleared up most of our snow. So uh, okay. you're experiencing a little piece for a Canadian winter uh, slash spring down in Michigan. I hear. <laughs> Wonderful. Fantastic. Okay. So let's talk about your organization. And I, I are both of you, both of y'all um, completely fundraised income. Is that what uh, your, uh, your work is with, with your organization? Tell us about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, at CCBR, all of us, we all have different summonings into the pro-life movement. Um, I'm fairly new to this. Uh, Jonathan has been with the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform for a long, long time. He's been a mastermind behind our our strategy um, that we use to actually change minds and shift the public tides on the abortion issue in our in our country and in our culture. Um, maybe I'll. So I'm still working through my fundraising right now. I I should say I'm I'm very grateful for all the generous folks who have come on board as monthly financial partners so far to make my uh, entry into the pro-life movement possible. But maybe I'll let Jonathan speak a little bit more to kind of our strategy as an organization and how people come to be involved. Yeah, so our organization uh, has existed since 2001. Many of you may have heard of of Stephanie Gray. She is one of the co-founders of CCBR. And for many years, it specialized in pro-life apologetics, teaching people how to engage the culture, teaching them how to talk to people about 
the issue using the most compelling arguments available. And then in 2011, five of us in the Calgary office uh, got together and we, we created a national plan uh, to impact the public across the country on the issue. And we did that by focusing on historical social reform movements. And so essentially the ideas that we employ on the Canadian streets are not CCBR's own ideas. What we did was we looked back through historic social reform movements, going all the way back to the very first historic social reform movement that was oriented towards shifting public opinion, uh, the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, which launched in 1787. And then we looked at all of the, the social reform movements to extract tactics, uh, time-tested tactics that would still be effective for the 21st century Canadian abortion context. We also looked, of course, to what the American pro-life movement had been doing for many years across, across the border. And so our uh, End the Killing plan, the plan that Jeff has signed on to, the plan that we now have about 25 to 30 staff members and more than 50 interns coming on this summer, uh, everybody's essentially joined a historic mission based on historic social reform movements to confront people with the truth about abortion and to change hearts and minds by showing them what the victims of abortion actually look like once abortionists have perpetrated violence against them. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. And and so, so Jeff, you said that you're, you are, have to fundraise all of your income. So you have to just get donors who are willing to buy into your mission in particular. How do, how do people donate to you, Jeff? so that you can get what you need to do your work. That's correct. So if people go that endthekilling.ca website that you just had on the screen, Tim, if they go to the donate tab, um, they can enter in. And basically what's presented to them when they click the other donate online option is we have each person is fundraising so that they can do this work in a full-time capacity. And so what they'll see is they see a drop-down menu. And from that drop-down menu, they can actually join my uh, financial support team so that their uh, financial support can go specifically towards me building the pro-life army in Western. Um, so people can go on there. And, and uh, what I'm really hoping to do is uh, through, like I said, the support that's come in so far, I've been so grateful for that and how that's enabled me to get started. But with this huge intern team that we have coming in this summer, what I'd love to do is bring more people on as monthly financial partners whether that's $5, $10, $20 a month, so that I can actually contribute full-time hours um, to building the life army and uh, saving across Western Canada this summer. Excellent. Yeah, so just so viewers and listeners, um, these are two individual men who have dedicated lives to this struggle. And you can either you know get donations from a big uh, philanthropist or something like that, which can fund different people to do this work full time, or you can have individual donors like this. So please go to, to endthekilling.ca and you can click on donate to help Jeff out, to help his fundraising goals. And uh, I met Jeff over at the Canadian men's conference organized by our friend Kennedy Hall in Ontario, Stratford, Ontario. And uh, I was very impressed with, with the presentation of your organization. And so, especially what Jonathan alluded to, and we'll get into that with this presentation. So um, at this point, I wanted to ask you first, before we get into that, what is the significance in your personal life or just in general of being a man in the pro-life struggle? There's a lot of good, our, our sisters in Christ, uh, uh, mothers, uh, daughters, sisters who are doing great work in the pro-life struggle across North America. Um, but what is the significance of men 
why do you think more men should be involved? Jonathan. There's a long list of reasons to that, but I think that particularly for our sort of post-Christian context here in the West, abortion is, is fundamentally a result of the failure of men in many, many ways. I believe that roughly 80% of abortions wouldn't happen if every single man who got somebody pregnant stood up and actually agreed to be a man to do everything he could to defend to defend the mother and to defend the child. What we find on the streets is that so many babies have been aborted and so many women um, have suffered as a result of men being predatory, as a result of men seeing abortion not as a female's choice, but as her obligation, as essentially the, the pay rate for playing on the uh, on, in the fields of the sexual revolution. And so our response to that has to be that because men are such an enormous part of the problem, men must also be an enormous part of the solution. And I think that this, for myself, and I know many other men who got involved, and I wrote about this actually in a chapter of one of my books, is that most of the male pro-life leaders got involved in this movement after seeing a photograph of an aborted baby or seeing a video of what an abortion looks like. And that's because when you see a human being created in the image of God, so weak, helpless, defensive, being targeted for such horrifying destruction like that, it makes you angry in a good way. It makes you want to do something about it. And it makes you realize that you are never permitted to stand silently by while our society endorses the destruction of the weakest and most vulnerable members of the human family. So I think that we need to remember that preborn babies in the womb not only have the right to life, uh, as men in this culture, they have a right to our defense. And that by joining the pro-life movement, by participating in the pro-life movement, we are merely actually according them the right to our defense. Thank you, Jonathan. Jeff, do you have any comments on masculinity and the pro-life struggle? I think an interesting point. So, um, part so there's a leader in the a big leader in the pro life movement named Scott Klusendorf, and he speaks to the fact that many people are summoned into the pro life movement, and many of my colleagues, Jonathan, myself included, we found ourselves some in with these pivotal moments in our lives, and one of the things that I had the opportunity to do in recent years was actually get involved with a local pregnancy care center, and when I started to see potentially an, an opportunity to get involved from a career perspective, seeking out um, how we can basically step between the abortionists waiting to kill these children and, and the mothers who find themselves in these difficult situations. I started to ask a question, is there actually a role for me in this pregnancy? And looking around and seeing all these wonderful, brave women who are literally waiting behind the reception desk, waiting by the phones for people to call in and ask for help. And to see how underutilized these services are in our society, it made me recognize not only the great support that we have for women, but also the fact that we need people not only waiting for people to come asking for help, but we need to go on the offensive. We need to go out into the public square and actually show people why um, abortion isn't a solution for any difficult problem that they might have. And so that's been an incredible part of this process too, going out and really um, opening people's eyes to the supports that we have available uh, for those women who are waiting uh, by the help. Excellent. Thank you both. I, I certainly have experienced it. People that I've known in my own life who uh, women, for example, who have been wounded or what have you from just negative experiences with men and how impactful and healing and helpful it can be for to be just in contact with uh, someone who embodies Christian masculinity, who is another Christ to another Joseph to uh, mothers and their children. 
uh, there's this great verse from Ecclesiasticus where it says, be a father to the orphans and a husband to the widows in the sense of protecting and providing. And so what you're doing in your work is uh, it's it's modeled on St. Joseph. It's this great, very important uh, masculine effort of, of offense, as you said. Um, so are you are you guys ready for me to put up your PowerPoint? Is that good? That, that'd be great. And maybe one thing just to give people a sense of, I talked about the summoning process, how I got involved. And we all have very interesting stories. So just to give you the Coles notes. So um, basically, like Jonathan said, my first awakening to the importance of standing up and actually defending these lives from abortion and defending these children was actually about 10 years ago. So I was on university campus. I'd always been pro-life. But it was actually when I saw one of these pro-life displays actually presenting what abortion does to babies in the womb that actually, um, where I actually grasped the importance of standing up and preventing this from happening. As it turns out, that was one of the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reforms displays, the organization that I'm now working with. But it was at that point in time that I started getting involved with like efforts like 40 Days for Life, trying to bring people out from our parish to pray across the street from the abortion clinic and to save lives that way. Um, I had the opportunity, like I said, to start volunteering with a local pregnancy care center. But the summoning bit was actually, so at this point, so 10 years after I'd first seen those images, um, I had, I was in the midst of what seemed like a promising academic career. And then my university where I was teaching at, they put in a vaccine mandate. And I went, okay, what do I do at this point in time? I was really grateful for one of our parish priests for helping me during that really difficult time. And from there, what happened was, so I submitted a religious exemption, it got denied. I submitted a second religious exemption, it got denied. And then I actually had my teaching contract canceled because I didn't get vaccinated. And so again, I went, okay, at this point in these uncertain times, how do I show my trust in God? How do I put my kind of livelihood and my career um, more firmly in his hands? And it was at this point last year where um, actually the beginning of 2022, where I did the uh, St. Louis de Montfort's uh, consecration to Jesus through Mary, um, which was a remarkable blessing. And as much as we talk about getting summoned into the pro-life movement, I think it was doing this consecration that served as a signal to God that I was ready to be summoned into the pro-life movement. Um, so from there, what happened was um, basically I got connected I, I can tell you providentially with CCBR, I started learning about the strategy that they use for saving babies. And then not only did I um, get trained in those conversational skills, but what really impressed me was actually going out into the public square with those skills and actually seeing people change their minds on abortion right away. And so for me, that was really exciting. And, and like I said, I'm working part-time right now, but um, as I continue to push in towards full-time with my fundraising goals, I'm really excited to share what we actually do with people to consider um, if they want to be a part of this pro-life mission. So I, thanks yeah. for that too. I just, totally. The well, story yeah, let's let's get into this PowerPoint. Um, let me pull this up here. Okay. So here is um, slide one. And Debbie has a question. Is this only in Canada? So your organization operates in Canada, but your methods can certainly be implemented in every state of these united states uh are you only in canada though uh we are a national organization we actually um there is an american-based center for bioethical reform which is part of our origin story 
Um, but our work is actually working nationwide across Canada to make abortion unthinkable. Yes. Excellent. Okay. But you're, you're from Michigan, right? Yes. Yeah, there's a phenomenal group in Michigan that I just spoke to last week. I was in Lansing called Protect Life Michigan that uses very similar tactics. They're an amazing organization. There's an organization in Ohio called Created Equal that does the same thing. These are groups that we work very, very closely with. And some of our team is actually in New York today. Excellent. So, Jeff, go ahead with this PowerPoint. Sure. So how the question people often ask is, how do we actually change public opinion? Do we wait for our politicians to actually say, open the debate on, uh, on the pro-life question? Or what are we doing as part of our head start that we're actually seeing change minds in public square? So we have three pillars to our approach. The first is publicly exposing the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child. And we do this by using abortion victim photography. And points two and three, we aim to actually proactively speak to Canadians before they get into a crisis pregnancy. And we have compelling and compassionate conversations with abortion to show them again that abortion is never a, a solution for any difficult pregnancy a problem that pregnancy might pose. And third part of my role specifically is changing minds, but also mobilizing the people once they have changed minds and mobilizing all the people like me that had pro-life convictions but never actually formally acted upon them. Um, so those are the three pillars of our, our approach. And I think for most people, when we look at different pro-life efforts, the second and third elements are quite common. I think the first question that a lot of people have about our approach is, is it necessary to use abortion victim photography in the pro-life movement? And from a compelling perspective, when I started learning about the historical precedent, we're actually really excited to share today exactly why we use abortion victim photography in our approach. And so maybe I'll turn it over to Jonathan as we get into um, the historical precedent for this. So Jonathan's written extensively about this. He has a book um, called Seeing is Believing, where he actually outlines the abolition of slavery story. And as, as I admitted at the Canadian Martyrs Conference that you referenced, Tim, before I got involved with CCBR, I knew very, very little about how slavery, a practice that was common among the British Empire, among many nations in the world in the 17th, 18th centuries for, for centuries to come, uh, for past centuries, I should say, I had no idea about how the incredible history, how this was actually abolished. So I'll turn it over to Jonathan to explain a little bit more about this incredible history. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's, it's a mark of how successful the abolitionists were, that they were so successful, people cannot imagine a world in which the attitudes they fought still exist. That there's the sort of false idea of progress now that because we all recognize that the slave trade is a wicked thing, that it was somehow inevitable that we would reach that point and we would we would suddenly reach this historical moment where we would do away with it. But it's really important to remember that when William Wilberforce and the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade joined together to take on the slave trade in 1787, that unlike abortion, which has been legal for half a century, uh, the slave trade had been legal in some form or another for all of recorded human history. And so to take this on was considered to be impossible, even by those who sympathized uh, with, with the gains of abolition. And when the campaign first launched, it really did look uh, like this was an impossible task. So 
Bill after bill was put forward by Wilberforce and the abolitionists in Parliament. Every single bill failed. And it wasn't until they actually created the image that on the slide there, which was uh, actually designed by porcelain maker Josiah Wedgwood, the very famous Am I Not a Man and a Brother image, that things really began to change. And the core principle that we've identified both in the abolitionist history and the history of other social reform movements is that as long as things remain in the realm of abstraction, people can ignore those things. Injustice that remains invisible inevitably becomes tolerable. And so with the slave trade, as long as this was an issue about West Indies plantations or economics or even diplomacy, the slave trade could be ignored. When the abolitionists began to produce images like this, diagrams of slave ships like the SS Brooks, other horrifying imagery um, of the tortures going on on the West Indies, slave plantations, for example. Every historian notes that it was these images, which you're all seeing there on the screen, that shifted British public opinion so definitively against the slave trade that by 1807, the slave trade had been banished in the British Empire, which then used its naval powers to end the slave trade internationally. And in 1833, slavery itself ended. And again, most people are unaware of how the public opinion on this issue was changed. And one of the reasons for that is because the abolitionists accomplished something so impossible and they changed the way we think about the issue so enormously that most people cannot fathom that there was ever a time in which most of Christendom simply accepted these practices as morally normative. And it, it's an incredible history too, just because when we look at the impossible task, it seems so in Canada, we live in a country where we have no laws against abortion whatsoever. We obviously the impact of Roe v. Wade in terms of adding some deference back to the states to determine their abortion laws, whether that's in a place like Texas, that's very friendly for children in the womb, whether it's a place like California or Washington or whatever that is, um, Washington DC um, or New York. But um, the other piece that really stands out to us, so when we look at the importance of victim imagery in terms of catalyzing an effective social reform movement, the other um, kind of piece of history that comes to mind immediately is actually looking at the American civil rights movement. So what we asked at the conference is, like, is Emmett Till a familiar name to many people? Because Emmett Till... Um, many people actually refer to him as the initial catalyst for the American civil rights movement. And maybe, Jonathan, you could speak a little bit more to Emmett Till's story. Well, it's interesting that you call him a catalyst. Uh, Dr. Clonora Hudson Weems, uh, who wrote a book uh, on the Emmett Till and how his murder was the catalyst for the civil rights movement, called him the sacrificial lamb of the civil rights movement. And just to give people a very brief background on the history of segregation, segregation was a system that relegated African-Americans to second-class citizen status. It was implemented right after the American Civil War ended in 1865. And essentially what this meant is that African-Americans were barred from voting across the South. Uh, if you couldn't vote, it meant you couldn't sit on a jury. If you couldn't sit on a jury, it meant that whites essentially got away with virtually any and all violence against African-Americans, including up to 1,500 lynchings. And so there was a reign of terror that an entire segment of the American population endured and lived under. And so most people think that the history of the American civil rights movement went something like this. In 1955, a young woman named Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat. And this 
lone act of defiance caught the attention of a young Baptist pastor named Martin Luther King Jr., who turned that act of defiance into the Montgomery bus boycotts. The Montgomery bus boycotts turned into the Freedom Rides. The Freedom Rides turned into the March on Washington. And then a year after that, 1964, you have the Civil Rights Act passed, which formally made segregation illegal. And the reality is that story starts just a few months earlier when Emmett Till, the boy you see on your screen there, aged 14 years old, went to visit his family in Money, Mississippi. And while he was there, he allegedly whistled or made a comment to a white woman in a general store. The historical details of exactly what he said are still being debated, literally as recently as this year, as the woman who made the accusation is still alive. And what we do know for certain is that he was extracted from his relative's home at gunpoint in the middle of the night, that his body was found a couple of days later at the bottom of the Tallahatchie River, wired to a 75-pound cotton gin fan, and that when the body was sent back to his mother, Mamie Till, in Chicago, she decided to hold an open-casket funeral. And this was the first time that most in the North had ever come face-to-face -face with the horrifying reality of what segregation actually resulted in. And so his open casket uh, at the funeral held in one of the largest downtown churches in Chicago, over 50,000 people at minimum filed past this casket. Some historians estimate around 100,000 people saw his body before Till was finally laid to rest. And photographs of what had happened to him are published in magazines like Jet Magazine. Suddenly, newspapers were talking nonstop about what had taken place to Till. And it was actually a photograph of what had happened to Till, that exact photograph that just came up on your screen there, um, that was published in Jet Magazine, a copy of which was picked up by Rosa Parks. And it was that image that inspired her to the solitary act of defiance that launched a social reform movement that ended in less than 10 years, a system of injustice that had lasted at that point for nearly a century. And it was imagery that drove the entire civil rights movement from start to finish. When we were working on our strategy at CCBR, we read Martin Luther King's Why We Can't Wait and Stride Towards Freedom, in which he details the essential nature of photographs uh, to the success of the civil rights movement. Because essentially, again, as long as people could ignore what was taking place in the South or elsewhere, uh, they could simply allow themselves to carry on living without addressing this fundamental injustice. But images laid the reality of what was taking place on the consciences of those who watched TV, who saw these pictures in newspapers, and as a result, an injustice that had flourished for nearly 100 years uh, came to an end. Tim, I don't know if you have anything at this point, but um, no, obviously you, you focused on Martin Luther King's movement recently and, and looking at a, um, a violence, non-violence, pacifist approach, if you had anything to add related to that or anything. Sure, I, I just wanted to, remark how it's really quite um it, it's quite providential that the the british empire as we know apostatized from the church under henry the eighth way back in the 1500s and one of their most effective methods for destroying the faith was this propaganda and they would use images for example uh elizabeth the first was the virgin queen and they were overthrowing the the devotion to mary and all these different propaganda things that we still have today we have propaganda against the spanish empire and the conquistadores and all this sort of thing because of this british uh propaganda machine and so it's providential that the british were able to actually god use this british propaganda machine to bring good out of evil in this in the 19th century as jonathan just talked about in terms of slavery um the church the the popes back to way back to 1435 opposed the slave trade 
but the popes were very much uh, unable to enforce that ban and many Catholic powers still engaged in it. Um, but it's really quite remarkable and um, that these images are able to affect this change. And I, I think that you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about abstraction, um, because it's so easy for us to abstract um, killing. You, you know, uh, they talk about they use different terms, the terms they use abstract the reality from what it really is um debbie has another comment here she says um whoops sorry i have tried to share the videos and pictures of the abortion procedures the baby during and after with my family and friends who are pro-abort or pro-choice and they refuse to view it mm -hmm. so um it, it, it's really <clears throat> it's unfortunate obviously but um there is an intuitive contact with reality that one can have with proper imagery any comments on how do you how do you get these images to people who refuse to look at them well it's interesting that you bring that up because there's uh there's an inadvertent admission in refusing to look at the images isn't there because if the images simply show a healthcare procedure then there's no reason to shy away from them right we, we might we might find a, a picture of an appendectomy um, somewhat distasteful, but we would never consider it to be offensive. Uh, the reason people don't want to look at images of what an abortion does is because they instinctively know that what we're talking about is something fundamentally different. It's the same, the same thing when somebody walks past our display and tries to claim the images are fake. There's an inherent admission in claiming the, the images are fake, and that's that if they are real, they depict something almost too horrifying to be countenanced. And so, interestingly enough, our, our strategy is designed based on the idea that most people will not will never voluntarily look at an abortion victim photo because most people would like this injustice to remain invisible either because they don't want to be guilted into doing something about it or because they want to continue on being blind as to what abortion actually does and that's why we have displays that go out in our truth trucks the displays we have on the streets the displays we have on the campuses what we are trying to do is 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 implement a creative tension where we force people to actually confront what is going on every single day behind closed doors across this country. Greg Cunningham once said, the cities, the sewers of our cities run red with the blood of preborn children. And what we're trying to do in Canada is to ensure that every Canadian has an interaction with an abortion victim, that they're gonna see the only photographs of these babies that were ever taken, the only baby photos that they actually have. And that just like as with past social reform movements, that creative tension forces them to the realization of the truth. And I think I think to add to that as well, like that, that admission, that implicit admission that abortion victim photography and victim imagery is effective. Like when we look back at any effective social reform in history, the common thread is that they all employ victim imagery. And so what we're saying, is, we're not saying that um, a movement that uses victim imagery is good by no means, but what we're saying is that a victim imagery works and using that as part of the social reform strategy works. And so that's part of why we use it in our, a big part of why we use it um, as a central pillar in our approach. Excellent. So. You have your uh, final slide, and this part is about ending child labor. Comments on that? 
Yeah, the, the, the National Child Labor Committee is one of those, it's very similar to the abolitionists and that it's one of these movements that was so successful, very little is known about it now, that most people sort of take it for granted that we just got so civilized, we stopped doing the sorts of things that are depicted on the screen. The reality is quite different. The National Child Labor Committee, founded in the early 1900s, sought to lobby for protections for children working at that point inside every American ma major American industry. Uh, these calls for reform were almost completely ignored. And so they hired a photographer named Lewis Hine, who took both the pictures you see there on the screen and thousands of others. And those pictures revealed what was actually going on behind closed factory doors and coal mines on lumber yards, that these children essentially were being denied a childhood, an education, uh, the, the work that they were enduring, often beginning at the age of three, shortened their lives. You see the picture on my right there with a little boy who had fingers torn out of his hand. There was many of these horrifying imagery. And when the images were released to the public, they were published in newspapers and magazine, Hein records in his diary that already the authorities had set to work to see if such things could be possible, he wrote. And within only a dozen years, restrictions were beginning to be passed against these practices just based on his photographs. And in my book, Seeing is Believing, I go through a, a long list of different social reform movements. I think the three that we just briefly encapsulated there really give um, sort of proof of concept that historically speaking, when you show people what's going on behind closed doors, when you remove the injustice from the realm of, of abstraction, introduce people to the victims, that it changes everything. And that whether you're up against the forces of thousands of years of history, a hundred years of segregation, or the forces of American industry, that showing people the truth of what is actually taking place um, can in fact change public opinion, reshape public consciousness, and result in an end to those injustices. And just so like the victims of these injustices needed to be seen in order to be believed. The victims of abortion also must generally be seen to be believed. And as a result of showing images of abortion victims on Canadian streets, we've normalized the process of changing minds. Every single one of our staff members has seen people go from pro-choice to pro-life. I've now seen that more times than I can count. We've gotten to actually meet children who were scheduled to be aborted in Canadian clinics. And the reason those children are alive providentially is because their parents were introduced to what a child who had undergone an abortion would actually look like. And the effect of those images was transformative. Okay. From our opposition. <laughs> and just, to, just to present to you, obviously there's some unfriendly and unfriendly, uh, maybe familiar faces here, but um, back to Jonathan's point too, like what's really interesting from a kind of PR perspective is every chance that these different uh, people have, they're denouncing our work and the work that we're doing. And so Justin Trudeau has specifically mentioned our organization multiple times in parliament, um, denouncing the work that we do. And it's not necessarily, we do definitely have some superheroes on board, but it's not because of the people that we have on our team that causes Justin Trudeau to denounce our work in parliament. It's specific, specifically because of the threat of abortion victim photography and what using that strategy um, actually poses um, for um, abortion access in Canada. And Jonathan, I don't know if you have anything to add about any of these leaders in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting that we are the one pro-life group that Trudeau has consistently called out by name. It's because I think abortion is sort of fundamental to the Trudeau legacy. And therefore, he particularly despises groups that expose the truth behind that legacy. 
Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada is again an interesting example because she has dedicated much of her time now to campaigning against CCBR and more specifically to have the images that we display covered up because people like herself believe that these children belong in the dumpsters and the incinerators. And essentially when we show the public what has taken place, what has happened to these babies, we allow them to escape in some sense and take their rightful place in the human family, as Dr. Monica Miller once put it. And we allow them to, to add their voice to ours in a demand for justice. Francis Kiesling, very interestingly, wrote a, a uh, op-ed. Um, now, it's probably like 15 years ago now with, with Francis Kiesling of, I'm um, sorry, that's Francis Kiesling with Kate Michaelman of NARAL Pro-Choice America in the LA Times. And they were writing a, 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 an essay in response to the question of why the pro-choice movement was losing so much ground. And in that essay, they explained that it was images of abortion victims that was causing the pro-choice movement to lose so much ground. And in fact, shortly thereafter, Planned Parenthood leaders advocated abandoning the term pro-choice because so few Americans wanted to identify with it. And that is because when we argue about choice, we always lose. But when we argue about what is being chosen and we show people what is actually taking place, that is when we begin to win the argument. We should never, ever have this debate on their terrain. And as this abortion leader, among many others that I cite in my book, uh, noted, once we take the debate off of their terrain and focus on the victims at the center of this story, but so often on the fringes of this issue, then it entirely changes the contours of the debate. And this this data that uh, is next up is mm -hmm. one of the most compelling parts of it for me. Um, so tell us about uh, the data that you've analyzed with your approach. I, yeah, I should say Jonathan was an integral part of collecting this data. So maybe, uh, yeah, Jonathan, if you wanted to explore this a little bit more, that'd be fantastic for our viewers. Yeah, so one of the things that CCBR did when we created our, our national plan to begin impacting public opinion is we committed to polling before and after we launched our projects. And the reason for that is we had anecdotal evidence that the imagery worked. All of us had, had seen minds change. All of us had seen people cancel their abortions. So we knew that it worked on the micro level, that going out on the streets, on campuses, doing outreach was worth it. What we wanted to know is whether or not this scaled up. So this part, we, we've done polling a number of times. This particular data set that you're looking at uh, was the results of a poll uh, done by a, the same pollster a lot of our, our Canadian members of parliament use, taken six months after we hand-delivered a million postcards across the country. This particular poll was done in the greater Toronto area where 9 million of Canadian, 9 million of Canada's 36 million Canadians live. We did it six months after they had seen a, a postcard to ensure that the effects were lasting, not just like two days or a week after they see the image. We wanted uh, them to have been able to sit with that image for a while. Then we just sent all the data to a uh, statistics professor who actually works at a Texas, Dr. Jacqueline Abernathy, and had her write up a report letting us know what the impact was. And this is what uh, she sent uh, back to us. What's interesting to me about this data set is it tracks almost perfectly with the other data sets that not only do we have, um, but it tracks with more public data sets that we've seen uh, of the impact on Canadian public opinion. And our internal data shows us that they the group of people most likely to be impacted by our imagery is women between the ages of 18 and 34. A recent public polling on the group of Canadians most likely to be anti-abortion happens to be women of the precise same age group. And so what we have found consistently with polling is that the individual stories we experience on the streets actually scales up. And that when we work to reach millions of people, we can make a, a, a discernible impact that 
we actually can we can determine by asking those who saw the images. <clears throat> and and one piece as well. So that's kind of the historical precedent for why we do what we've done. Mm -hmm. But we also take performance outcomes very seriously at CCBR and in terms of monitoring and adapting our strategies. And what we found is we know abortion victim photography is effective, but we've enhanced our approach by also um, carrying out um, using this conversational roadmap to have compelling and uh, compassionate conversations about abortion. What we saw last year alone, we had almost 4,000 conversations with people just in Western Canada. We saw one in four people who supported abortion become fully pro-life through one short conversation. In addition to those 25% uh, of people, we saw another 29% of people who started a conversation with us supporting abortion in subcapacity become more pro-life in their in their worldview. Um, so when we take these results together, we're seeing more than half the pro-choice people that we actually speak with becoming either fully pro-life or more, more pro-life in their conviction. And for us and for someone who's in a role of actually mobilizing people to actually speak up for those babies who can't speak for themselves, this is really solid evidence for continuing continuing to grow the work that we're doing. And so it's very exciting to share this work. So, and this says 2,744, is that how many people you polled and talked to? Is that what so, the sample size is? So we actually, we, we spoke with um, almost 4,000 people in Western Canada in 2022. Of the 4,000 people, the 2,700 that you see there, there okay. the people that we recorded as starting a conversation, either fully supportive of abortion or supportive of, of abortion in some uh, capacity to begin the conversation. Okay. So these aren't polling numbers per se. These are in-person conversations that we're having with people about abortion. Okay. So now let me, I'd like to field a few objections to your reproach, and I'm sure you've heard these from our allies. Um, other, you know, people who are involved in the pro-life movement, they're doing March for Life or various other thing, Crisis Pregnancy Center. Um, what do you say to those, our, our own allies, our Christian brethren, who say that this is too extreme, that your approach is sort of too sensationalized or whatever? What What do you say to that objection? Yeah. So one of the things that we'd say, you made the point a couple of weeks ago, Tim, that like true peace is the presence of justice. It's not a ceasefire. And while we might not live in the physical presence of war in our daily lives, we're definitely in a spiritual war. I think sometimes we can forget that if we're spending Sunday afternoon in the park with our family, we're at the baseball diamond, whatever it is, maybe our workplace isn't so bad. But all you have to do is stand up and defend any of the Christian values behind traditional marriage, behind man, God creating man in the image of himself. So um, in his own image and likeness, in um, as male, as female, um, standing up for the sanctity of life. All you have to do is present that in a public forum. And really quickly, the spiritual war that we're in becomes apparent around. And so the question is, in a spiritual war, how do we best stand up for those babies who can't defend themselves? And one analogy that was presented to me early on that I found really powerful is, if you imagine a house that's on fire, we want to use our most powerful tool that we have for putting out that fire. So in this case, it's the fire hose. We know that if someone stands in front of the fire hose, it's not going to end well. So we know that it comes with some level of risk. But when we see the effectiveness of using victim imagery and abortion victim photography, and we can 
mitigate that risk by also having these compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion, um, we really see the effect that it has. And for a lot of people that maybe haven't prayed in front of an abortion clinic before, um, but for those who, like, for a lot of the people in our team, once they've actually um, immersed themselves in the environment and participated in our outreach, I think they see for themselves the, the power tool that abortion victim photography is, but the value of it in terms of bringing people to a, a pro-life worldview. Jonathan, do you have anything to add in, in that regard? Yeah, I have, I have two primary responses to the argument that the images are extreme. Um, so when somebody says that the images are extreme, uh, my assumption generally is that they simply do not understand the nature of abortion in which in Canada, hundreds in America, thousands of babies are pulped, poisoned, decapitated, dismembered and disemboweled every day. These images simply depict a reality. They're a window into something that's happening every single day as the three of us have this discussion, as people are listening along. This is actually happening. And so they are by definition not sensationalized. They are simply depictions of what is taking place. Some of the worst imagery we have, we don't even put on signs. Um, so I would first off point out that these pictures are no different than any other documentary evidence of, a, of an injustice that, that is taking place. And that if you think that these images are kind of extremist, then I would argue you don't understand the nature and the reality of what abortion is and what it does to preborn children every day. These images are not even proportionate. They're simply a depiction of reality. The second uh, point that I would make is, is I don't use these images simply because I think that, that it's good to force people to face the truth and who cares if they're offended, et cetera, et cetera. I use these images because we've tested their effectiveness against every other public educational strategy. Um, again, we've not only hired pollsters, but we've tested our own tactics. And thus far, they are by far the most effective tactic at actually changing people's minds and actually causing them to cancel their abortions. If I have ever introduced to or discover a tactic and a strategy that is more effective at changing hearts and minds, then I will adopt that one instead. Um, so I, I don't. I think that the use of these images is eminently morally justified, but I don't necessarily think there's a moral imperative to use them unless they are the most effective way at saving lives from the destruction they depict. And so, as long as I continue to see consistent results. Um, with regards to their effectiveness, there I do think there is a moral imperative to use them for that reason. We are guided by effectiveness because we as the pro-life movement um, have taken on the responsibility and the burden of actually saving babies. And that is what we're there to do. We're not there to make friends. Um, we are not there to ensure that everybody sees how nice Christians are. We are not there simply to be a witness. We are there to actually rescue children from a horrifying fate. And if we are not doing that, we are simply not doing our job. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, now, I'd like to ask you about what is the pro-life situation in Canada? You've mentioned it. You've alluded to it a few times that there are no laws against abortion in the various provinces of Canada. In these United States, obviously, Roe versus Wade has been overturned, but individual states have varying laws uh, allowing or disallowing abortion at different stages of the gestation of the child. Um, so very much in our, in the States is very much, we're at the state level fighting for, uh, laws and changing hearts and minds. What is it like in Canada? Can you comment at all on that? Yeah. Um, so 
one of the things, so my colleague, our colleague at CCBR, Alex Van de Bruenhorst, so he's, uh, he was doing a recent uh, internship recruitment presentation. And when we talked about the fact that on average, there are 300 preborn children in Canada who are killed every single day in Canada, simply because there's no law to protect them. So some provinces have different, basically their, uh, their abortionists set a different timeline for when they might actually perform abortions up to. Uh, we had this horrific case in Montreal back on the Feast of the Presentation of All Days on February 2nd, where there was a woman who scheduled an abortion appointment for the next day, and she was 38 weeks along in her pregnancy. So someone actually called in. So the incredible thing with this specific case is with having no laws on abortion, things like this can happen any day in Canada. And the nurses even, so someone actually made through the 70 people when they heard about this case the day before, they actually reached out to our friends at the Quebec Life Coalition to actually express support to see if there's anything they could do to help this endangered baby. And multiple people actually even offered to adopt the child. Um, one person got through to the nursing staff and, and can you imagine that moment making it through to the nursing staff on the phone when you know that this baby at 38 weeks is scheduled to be killed the next day. And so what the nursing staff told this woman on the phone was that they were incredibly sad for this to happen the next day, but they realized that the mother had a choice to abort this child and there was nothing they could do about it to stop it. And so we're in a place where a woman's primary challenge with having an abortion is actually finding an abortionist who will actually do it as she gets later and later in pregnancy. But there's no legal recourse to prevent that. And I want to get back to, uh, I, I mentioned Alex initially, one of the ways that he broke down that 300 children a day was he actually talked about a situation that makes more sense with us. So if we think about a deranged gunman who actually kicks down the door into a kindergarten classroom, um, he shoots all this, the students inside. And then imagine this strange gunman goes down the street and he does the same thing again. And then he does this again and again. If that happened in our country, where he goes in and shoots up 10 kindergarten classrooms, that would be all over the news. That would be unprecedented, right? Well, the reality is, is every day in Canada, that happens to preborn children who would soon fill 10 kindergarten classrooms if simply left to live. And so I think when we look at our role as men, specifically, what is God calling us to do to actually defend these preborn children? And it can be easy to be become apathetic, like to think that there's nothing we can do. But the more that we get involved with using this form of outreach and actually using this conversational strategy, using the images, the more that we really see that God does have a role for us men to actually stand out there and to stop these abortions from happening. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Jonathan, any final comments on uh, men and the pro-life struggle? Yeah, I, I would uh, I would second everything that Jeff has, has, has just eloquently said. One of the things that I think is very attractive to men today in the 21st century is that we look we look at the the sort of the rubble of the post-Christian West all around us. And I know that there's a lot of guys seeking for something to give their life meaning. And there's two ways you can look at our post-sexual revolution society. One of them is sort of a grief and recognition that the society our parents raised us for no longer exists, uh, that in many ways things seem to be spiraling out of control. And the other way is to recognize that we receive the unique po uh, possibility, the unique opportunity to become counter-revolutionaries, and that a life lived in defense of the good, the true, and the beautiful 
is a life eminently worth living. I've always said that I think the pro-life movement has given me a lot more than I've given it. Because the moment when I first got to hold a baby that was scheduled to be aborted at a clinic near my office was one of the most, it was probably the most beautiful moment of my life until I held my first daughter uh, for the first time. And that's because as men, we need, we need to be able to do the masculine thing. We need to be able to defend the weak and the defenseless. We need to be able to defend the vulnerable. Our society offers very few opportunities to men to actually live out that role. The pro-life movement is one area where men still have that opportunity. And I would urge any man listening who's considering whether or not to take the plunge to do so. And anyone who can't take the plunge themselves to support Jeff in doing so. Excellent. Well, that that's that, uh, finally, Jeff, final comments, Jeff, uh, once again, to help Jeff fundraise so that he can do this full time. Go to endthekilling.ca, click on donate, and then you can click on uh, donate online and then use the drop down to support Jeff. Jeff, final okay. comments for us. Yeah. And I would add to like, we know the financial support is necessary to get me on board. Like if everyone could make a $5 a month donation today um i would ask you know what if if you're still at this point in the episode like maybe god is calling you uh perhaps to contribute as part of this pro-life mission to save babies and, and to build this pro-life army in western canada but in addition to the financial support that necessitates this work and enables this work the other thing that i'd ask for is five hail marys as well uh, to provide the spiritual protection for our team as we go out into this battle um, to take on the devil in his various forms I think um, one of the things that I often think of is, is like at this point in time, we have the NBA playoffs starting. We have the NHL playoffs starting. I was really excited at one point in time about the baseball season before things got really political. And while there's many men who are slumbering into that the next few months um, to bring people on board to help me activate the chess pieces that we've been assembling in recent weeks and months with our team so we can go out and mobilize the masses in this fight to do this pro-life work that's actually changing minds and, and changing hearts and saving lives. And to really, um, with the help of this massive team of interns that we have coming in this summer, actually engage in this fight, um, I'd be incredibly grateful. Um, and and I, need, I need the support. I'm grateful for everyone who supported it. The other thing that I'd add too is um, when you see on your credit card bill, so for you Americans that decide to partner today, um, when you see like a $4 charge, a $350 charge coming in, um, I'd ask that you can keep those proportional five Hail Marys um, on on boat, especially if uh, you get a new president and our Canadian dollar continues to drop before Trudeau ends up uh, in front of his scandal. So um, if you could do that, not only the financial support, but the prayerful support to complement that, um, I'd be incredibly grateful. Absolutely. Well, well, that's that's a perfect way to end this. Let's offer up those five Hail Marys right now. This is the uh, Russian icon of Fatima that we use. This is our one of our patrons at 1 Peter 5 is Our Lady of Fatima. And we promote Eucharistic reparation. And But as we know, the errors of Russia, one of the most pernicious errors thereof is, of course, child murder, a.k.a. abortion. So let's pray those Hail Marys right now. Uh, Jeff, can you pray the second half of the Hail Mary? Uh, yes, for me and we'll just uh, we'll close out with this In the name of the father son and holy spirit amen hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen.